welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, PBS Distribution's Amy Letourneau. Fred Rogers once said that there are three ways to success. The first way is to be kind. The second way is to be kind. And the third way is to be kind. My friend Amy shows us all three. See, of all the helpers who help make Mr. Rogers and me get made, find its audience, and make an impact, few did so much so quickly and amplified our efforts more than PBS Distribution's Amy Letourneau. Amy and I met in 2011 when our mutual friend, filmmaker Matt Mills, an early viewer and advocate with whom I'd worked at MTV News, mentioned Mr. Rogers and me to Amy at the Sundance Film Festival. Two months later, at the South by Southwest Festival, Amy and I met over breakfast. Within days, she'd connected us to American Public Television for our eventual broadcast deal and signed us to our PBS distribution deal. The following March 20th, on Fred Rogers' birthday, our little film, which had languished after its initial run of two dozen or so festivals and benefit screenings, was suddenly kind of everywhere. Even the arts and leisure section of the Sunday New York Times, whose description of our film as interviews with former colleagues, acquaintances, neighbors, and friends would later inspire the name of this very podcast. In the 10 years since its premiere, Mr. Rogers and Me has aired nearly 2,000 times across 70% of the United States, often as a centerpiece for fundraising for public broadcasting itself. It's been downloaded, streamed, and purchased on DVD more than 25,000 times. The trailer has a quarter million views. That's a lot of deep and simple. And that's a long way from that little corner of Nantucket where Fred Rogers encouraged me to spread the message. Thanks, in no small part, to Amy. I grew up in a little corner of southeastern Massachusetts that was pretty rural. My mom's family has lived in that part of the world for generations, and there's so many of them. And so I grew up with a big family in that part of the world. There were always... Animals, cats, dogs, chickens, mm. cows, ponies, even a lamb or two. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my mom is one of 10. We lived on the same street that my mom was born on. So a lot of my early memories are actually at the house my mom grew up in. It's really just kind of interesting to think about like their deep roots. That must have meant you had a lot of kind of family time with cousins and aunts and uncles and a real rich network, I'm guessing, of sort of support and love. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I have 30 plus cousins, so many of them. And my mom's family in particular were super close. We spent a lot of time in big family gatherings with barbecues and clam bakes and cousins and neighbors and people telling stories of their crazy adventures together. So my early memories are really of that community of very eccentric New Englanders. (laughs) My mom's Extended family and their friends were just such a rich tapestry of people from uh, lobstermen to truck drivers to dairy farmers. They just told stories about their lives and their childhood, and they had all grown up together. And I just remember just being enthralled by their antics and their laughter. 
and their kindness and their quirkiness. And so that's really some of my earliest memories is just kind of being surrounded by people who all accepted each other with all their bumps and differences. I have this very wonderful memory of every time we would visit their house that they would stand on the steps and wave and yell, Mm. toodaloo, toodaloo, until we were all the way down the driveway and all the way down the street and out of sight whenever my sister and I are together. And we do not live close together, but we we try to kind of carry on that network of love that I learned from that family. What is um, one of the first stories you remember? I loved the Laura Ingalls Wilder (gasps) collection of books. And my mom would read them to me. And as a matter of fact, she read them so many times that she actually at one point started recording them on a reel-to-reel tape so that she could play them for me. And I just would do anything to have that reel-to-reel tape of my mom reading Little House in the Big Woods to me. Is there a movie or a TV show that you remember really imprinting positively when you were a younger person? You know, we did not have cable television when I grew up. Yeah. So television was not actually a huge part of my childhood. That came much later to me. And I was mostly interested in the technology of how magical television was. Yeah. In my high school, we had a PEG channel, a public access channel. Uh And that group of students, it was run by a club, would broadcast the football games and the school committee meetings. And we, as you know, teenagers made all that happen. And I just remember thinking it was so magic that I could put some wires in the wall and a camera and my mom at home could yeah. follow along with what was happening. And this really goes straight to what you do and that you had a right to those airwaves, right? Which is something that Fred always talked about, right? Like not more than right, a responsibility. It is the highest quality content on our airwaves. And you really do carry that legacy forward. I certainly didn't set out on that journey. In college, I sort of realized that documentaries had this power that I was really interested in, but I didn't really have a sense of how I could get from there to having a career. So let's step through how you got there, because on your CV, and this is how resumes go, but it looks like, oh, what a bunch of logical steps. I think it's so funny to hear you say my career looks so logical, Yeah, because the path was totally random, and I think guided a little bit by knowing more about what I didn't want than Mm. what I really wanted. I vividly, vividly remember because I was so focused on doing well in school from an early age all the way through college, graduating from college and just not knowing what to do, not knowing how to get a job. I had spent my whole life focused on academics and never thought about how am I going to practically apply this. And my huge family didn't really have much accumulated knowledge about how to do that either. So I really was sort of on my own. And I think I just fell up in a bunch of places where I made great decisions, maybe not for great reasons, but they totally worked out. My very first job actually started as a temp job because I knew how to type and I thought that would be a great place to start. And I knew just about enough about databases from college to kind of get hired Uh, by this company that had nothing to do with television. And I really loved it. I love the work. I love the people. I love the problem solving. And then I, after a couple of years, realized that I really wanted to be in television Mm. and that I needed to figure out a way to do that. What led to that epiphany? Were you discovering 
programming that really moved you and helped you understand the potential of the medium? Like what drove you to, to that? Oh, I really think I need to be in TV. I remember volunteering at another local television station that had a music video show. MTV yeah. was like just happening. The emotional connection to the storytelling mm, and the songs and the right. combination of the images and the music and the pacing was just something I was fascinated by. Like, how does that work? Yeah. And I think that's kind of where I started trying to figure out if I could study that. Yeah. <laughs> I was really interested in how media even though I wouldn't have used that word at that time. Yeah, right, me neither, but like yeah. connect with your soul yeah. and move you, teach you, you know, make the world a better place. Like that yeah. was before I even really understood what public television was, but it was very much in the heart of my motivation for wanting to study some of these things. I love that you discovered that with a music video. I mean, that's a real commonality for you and me. It's a shared point. Music has also been really important. So I, I think I am not a storyteller and I realized that through my path, but I love storytellers and people who are good at this. And I realized that I could be somebody who puts them in a position to do their best work. There's a lot of coordinating and support roles, taking care of all the details so that people can tell these stories and use these tools in a very artistic way that is not my particular skill set. We have to talk about Syracuse. Were we there at nearly the same time? We must have been. I would Or am I, I making you older than you are? No. Yeah, I'm I you older. I'm sorry. But you must have stayed because my college roommate, Karen, would go to your shows. And then when she found out that I was working with you, she was so impressed. Like this was my, her definition of success for me was that my path had crossed with you. <laughs> That's very sweet. Yeah, we must have overlapped. And it's mostly just nice to know that anybody even saw my college band. That's incredible. <laughs> I was at WERW. I think I told you this for exactly one night. I bet you did a lot more than, than I did there. That looks like it was a pretty major part of your time. Is that right? My uh, friend Michael and I, who I'm still friends with to this day, had a very eclectic radio show where we had a lot of wacky antics, but we did manage not to get kicked off <laughs> the college station. So you had a regular slot on the weekly or the daily? A uh, weekly, and I cannot remember when it is. I'm pretty sure it was the middle of the night. <laughs> I was a television radio film major, and then I had a minor in business. And I did another minor in women's studies, which was, again, really, I think about, to me, storytelling and who yeah. gets to tell the stories. Mm -hmm. So I loved both of those things. And who would have ever thought that that business minor would become so formative for, you know, going on to get an MBA and a lot of the work and jobs that I had since then. Even just going back to high school, that television studio was run by a club and I was the only woman mm. in that club. And I think I might have joined intentionally to make a girl be part of that club. That feels yeah, something right like I would do. Yeah. <laughs> but the teacher who led that was super encouraging and warm and welcoming and just made sure that I was, you know, given any opportunity that any other student that was part of that club would be. So I'm super, super grateful for him. And then as I had early jobs in media, there were very clearly things that women did and things that women did not do. Yeah. And so now that I have, you know, sort of achieved a certain tenure, I do feel an obligation to make sure people behind me 
women um, and other young people who just kind of need some direction have it. Like I'm willing to make myself available to talk to people about my crazy path and to, you know, give them some advice. So whenever a Syracuse student calls me, I'm going to take that call. (laughs) Have you seen appreciable change in your career or do you feel like there's plenty of work left to do? I think both. Honestly, I feel really lucky in my role in public television to be surrounded by so many amazing women leaders. But I I do think that hasn't been my experience in all of the places that I've worked. But I absolutely know that there's plenty of people in my generation who have done things that are kind of first and changing things. The first gig that looks PBS-ish from my vantage point is one of the cornerstones of the network, which is WGBH, right? Which looks like you kind of got in with a certain size gig and just kept chipping away and growing it. What was your experience? Yeah, that was not as easy as it seemed. I'm sure. GBH is a powerhouse and I am so grateful to have had the chance to work there partly because it served my community and it was something that was part of my life. I was a listener for the radio station and a viewer of the television station before I worked there. So, you know, I came kind of understanding the mission and its importance in the community, but I applied for 20 jobs before I got the first interview. And I had five interviews before I got, I found the job that was right for me. Um, And what was really interesting is it really was a perfect job for me, um, working on the radio side and, again, doing a lot of coordination and support for the engineers. And I had dabbled in sound recording at one point, thinking I might be a recording engineer. I knew enough about the technology to be helpful in that job. And I had had a job in the private sector working on a bunch of databases and working with technology, kind of building new systems. But GBH Radio, at the time I was about to start, really wanted to transform some of their infrastructure into being more technical. And so I just had this interesting set of skills of knowing just enough about radio and just enough about networks to kind of help them through that process. And then from there, I did make some strategic moves about how to move around in the that organization and just immediately fell in love with public media and knew that this is where I wanted to be. You were home. Yeah. And so you end up at maybe one of public broadcasting's most well-known shows, Antique Roadshow. That was so much fun. It was so, so much fun for two reasons. One is I love the puzzle of that logistical thing. How am I going to get 50 people to a city in this part of the country on this weekend? And how are they all going to get fed and move from a hotel to another hotel? I just really loved putting all those pieces together and making sure it worked. And other people did not like that. (laughs) Yeah. And I loved that they told these great stories. And that team was so incredibly talented. But for me, one of the things that I loved the most about that job was it was a chance for me to work with the volunteers that the local stations brought to make each of those events happen. So I got to meet people who also loved public television. And then I got to meet the guests who would come with their treasures and talk to them about why why they were here. And it just was 
so wonderful. I think you don't often get that experience when you're in television to meet your viewers and your biggest fans. And so for me, that was the part that I remember so loving so much is just getting a chance to interact with people. How did you then move into this sort of acquisition and distribution? What does that mean? I think my path from production to distribution was really kind of an accident. This is a great example of where I made decisions for certain reasons. And then the results of those decisions turned out to be great, but I couldn't have possibly known what was going to, what was to come. So when I was at GBH, I was working in Boston and I had again, grown up in this really small town. And I thought to myself, like, how am I going to make the most of my time here? So I started thinking about going to business school part-time at night, kind of after my day job to just get some more skills around how to run a business. And then sort of accidentally for, for personal reasons, ended up moving to Connecticut and needing to leave GBH and being a little sad about that, but thinking, well, I guess what I'll do since I was going to go to business school is just go to business school in Connecticut. What schools are there? Yeah. Well, you know, I applied to one business school that happened to be the Yale School of Management, which is a school that really puts a big emphasis on leaders who are leading for the benefit of society, Mm. um, as well as people who are leaders in business. And so if I had picked from any school in the whole world, I could not have picked a better place for me to land. And it was really based on just the logistics of my life at the time. So I had no intention of leaving public television. I sort of anticipated that I would relocate back to Boston after my time in Connecticut, But things changed, and then I had the opportunity to go anywhere. And so then I was able to think, well, what do I want to do? And all of the national organizations that kind of lead public television are based in D.C. So I said, well, instead of working at a station for a while, let me take a look at what jobs exist at the national level. So I did an internship at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, And then one of the people I met there was working on starting this for-profit venture within public television to distribute content that was produced and aired on public television Mm. to generate revenue to support the mission and to support the producers. And we were talking and I had a lot of experience with contracts and I had some experience with public television and I loved creators and I had a six-month temporary job in Washington, D.C. to see if I liked living here. Uh, and after about two months, we all decided that I loved it. And, yeah. me, and then I became a full-time employee of this brand new company called PBS Distribution. And I have been here for more than a decade. Oh, I didn't realize you'd, you'd basically help build it. That's incredible. I had a very small role <laughs> in that, but I was part of the OG crew. And it really has changed so much. You know, when we met, when we started working together, most of the work that we were doing in the U.S. was really about selling DVDs. Mm-hmm. And right around that time is when downloads started happening and there certainly wasn't streaming. Yeah. Now, fast forward, you know, 10 years, that's where most of people are buying and consuming is yeah. certainly in digital and definitely in streaming. There's something about how life works out because of and despite plans, right? That's beautiful. Like there are no accidents. Do you ever pause to be like, that's kind of magical? I do think that you put yourself in a position to make your own luck. 
Mm. Um, and there are other things like I'm a curious person. I like to understand mm. how things work. I like to put the pieces together. I like to help people do their jobs well. So every job I've had had elements of that. And I do kind of wonder, did I choose that job or did I find those elements in that job that are fulfilling? I think both sides of those stories are true. So you may have had a number of opportunities where right place, right time, but also like you brought Amy to it. It's not something that I think about myself. Like I don't sure. spend time yeah. contemplating this, but what are the traits that I grew up with that helped me get there? I definitely think curiosity and kind of valuing knowing how things work mm. absolutely has helped me in, in so many places. And I think also being able to be the person who understood what are the engineers needing here and then what are the executives needing here and how can I translate in between those two groups of people who kind of speak different languages. For sure. And, and I do think that comes from having like that huge family where there yeah. were so many people who all brought their own sense of uniqueness to any given moment. It was not a one-size-fits-all family. And I think yeah. it's not a one-size-fits-all world. If I was like, oh, I wonder what I'll do when I grow up. Oh, I might be in acquisition and distribution. How would you explain to me what that is? PBS Distribution's job is to generate revenue to support public television and our stations and our producers. And what we focus on is selling programs, mostly after they've aired on public television, across other platforms for people to own or stream or to collect DVDs if they want to collect them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the work that I do is working with the editorial groups at PBS and at GBH and at a lot of the series to just understand what those opportunities look like. Where are the platforms that we could launch their shows? The film we made, I'd love to hear from your vantage point, like how did it cross your plate? From my vantage point, you're like a guardian angel. Someone was like, oh, you should call this person. And then all of a sudden it was like beautifully resolved. My recollection is that Matthew connected us. Yeah, you saw him at Sundance, I think. We met in Austin on Matthew's recommendation. And of course, you know, a film by someone of my generation about Mr. Rogers and public television with such a great soundtrack, by the ah, way, uh, just really touched me and I wanted to be helpful. So I thought for sure that you should talk to some of my colleagues who could help the film get a broadcast. Yeah. You and Chris did all the hard work in, in making the film. I just connected you to somebody who could help. <laughs> that. Maybe true, but in a lot of ways, it had run its course. We did a few screenings and I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> As I went back and watched the film, you know, in preparation for talking to you, the folks that you talked to and like their personal experiences and how it meshed with their professional lives to kind of help form them and their paths, that just really resonated with me about, you know, people should watch this film and it's, it can help you think about what you want your impact to be. Right. That really is it, isn't it? And that connects right to your MBA, which is like, why are we here and how can we help? I loved hearing you talk about how our work together just changed your life because you didn't know what to do once you finished making the film. And yeah. some those are some of my favorite moments of the filmmakers I've been able to work with to help their film reach new audiences 
and to kind of go beyond just the beautiful process of making it to help them tell these these important stories. There's several examples of people who I'm just really proud to have helped them on their path. And you were definitely one of them. APTV told me it's aired in nearly 70% of the country, something like 1,600 times. And I always take it back to sitting in the living room in my mom's cottage with him on my birthday. Literally, the power's out. There's a fire and candles. And I say, you know, I just keep thinking about this thing you said to me last year, deep and simple. And he goes, spread the message. The message was lightly spread when I met you. But once you, a helper, showed up, it was a thousand X, the impact. And because that was my goal to spread the message and his challenge for me, I mean, I just want to overemphasize and state how critical you were to that. Just think of the massive difference in that impact, you know? I mean, this goes back to why I love public television from the beginning of my career, just that there are these really meaningful, inspirational stories. You know, sometimes they're emotional, sometimes they're about information or facts or ways that the world works. And I love that my job is to help get those stories out to as many people as possible. There are just so many other helpers. The whole team at APT, like we have a huge team of people who are working on making all this happen technically and business-wise. So there's a lot of people who are kind of like the swan's feet below the water making it all work for you. How do you think about depth and simplicity in your own life? You know, it's a fast-paced kind of complex world. What kind of tactics do you try and employ to just keep your feet on the ground and your head on your shoulders? I think this is something that I can be better at and I want to be better at. I try to be really intentional about focusing on the person who's in front of you. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially in the last few years around COVID, I think giving people the space to know it's okay not to be okay in a personal environment and a professional environment. Like one thing that COVID has helped me realize is how very important that is, even in the best of times to just make space to see the whole person. In the 10 years since Amy helped bring Mr. Rogers and me to a national audience, our nation's changed. We seem more divided and less certain of any collective truths than ever. The pandemic has left millions dead, billions anxious, and a generation hopeless. So maybe there's no better time than now to remember when he told us to look for the helpers. Throughout the month of March, we're going to reconnect with the friends and neighbors who made Mr. Rogers and Me possible, like Amy. And like one-time Mr. Rogers and Me researcher turned Sesame Street puppeteer, Kathy Kim. I'll be getting together with Neighborhood Archive creator Tim Leibarger and authors Amy Hollingsworth and Tim Madigan. And next week, I'm sitting down with Wagner brother number one, Christopher Wagner. Because as Fred Rogers reminds us, if you look for the helpers, you'll know that they're so... Friends and Neighbors is an Essential Industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com and please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Friends.